Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I've got in the beach shack Steve York, who was the former commander of the New South Wales Police Force in the negotiation uh, section for 20 years. He's also had landmark arrests of armed robbers and murderers, and he tells us about the different big jobs that the uh, sieges that he was involved with, especially the one at Liverpool. Now, let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Steve. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have Steve York in. He was former commander of New South Wales Police Force in negotiation. He's got some uh, really good stories and and may even be able to help uh, myself as a lifeguard and the other lifeguards as well on how to negotiate the ones we get up at the Gap, but also uh, just negotiating with just a general customers we get down the beach so welcome steve to the beach shack yeah thank you very much Robert. now mate uh we'll go back to when you first started and and why did you want to go into the police force <laughs> uh well that's kate going back some years i can tell you but uh no i uh, i won a cadetship to amp straight out of school and to do economics part-time while i worked at uh, amp i think it's the it's the equivalent of the internship sort of programs that big companies have now. And one day my boss said to me, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing, you know, one day all this could be yours. And uh, I sort of looked across the room where his office was and uh, I thought, so in 40 years I'm going to move from this desk to that desk. And I didn't think that was, you know, like too exciting. So I, I left the office that day and went and joined the police. Right. And then when you started there, did you start on the beat first or what was the uh, role? Yeah, I started at the beat, started, everyone starts uh, in uniform and I started at Rockdale Police Station, uh, which was 1977. And in those days, there was a lot of uh, immigration to Rockdale from the then Yugoslavia and it was a, it really was a split community and there was a lot of domestic disputes as children who grew up in Australia started to sort of re- revolt against their parents' um, sort of background and, and what their rules were. So it was a very dynamic uh, area. It was very good training. And do you think that training helped as you moved through your career and then into negotiation? Yeah, look, it's, it was, it's all in the police. It's all very evolutionary and, you know, you've, you've got a great opportunity with an organisation of, you know, roughly 16,000 people that <clears throat> there's all sorts of things. You know, you can go into water police, you can go into rescue, forensics, detectives, stay in general, general sort of duties work. I mean, it's a great variety. And um, I, uh, while I was at Rockdale, I helped solve a murder and the local detective senior sergeant in those days was 
you know, did, wasn't God, but knew God firsthand, got me involved in in uh, the detectives or plain clothes work. And from there, I went into eventually wound, wound myself up in um, armed hold-up squad. And as part of that, you trained as a as a uh, as an operative, wearing black and carrying submachine guns and kicking indoors and so forth. And I did that for a number of years. And one day there was a realization that this was really dangerous work, and okay. someone could get killed, and it could be me. And myself and another number of police officers got together and talked about how can we do this differently. And the the whole thing came up through uh, the superintendent, Norm Hazard at the time, sort of championed this idea of surround, contain and negotiate as being a first response uh, instead of kicking in the door. And so I was involved in that cultural change back in the, back in the day. And that's what happened. We put, we put money and resources and training into negotiation um, as being the primary response. And, you know, roughly 400 high-risk, situations where people's lives were at risk, whether it be committing suicide or holding people barricade or barricading themselves, about 400 a year were solved uh, peacefully. And, and in that, do you think as you went to that and that new era, as you said, with negotiating, do you think some people naturally have that ability or it can be trained well, it's it's good news actually because um, I I believe that some people are just natural. I mean, you know, and you have to walk down Parramatta Road and you'll find a natural negotiator in car yards. You know, they're very very good. They're very one dimensional, but very good, very good at building that rapport with people. But the but the good news is that you can learn it. And um, I've taken probably a thousand people from just being a regular police officer who's done some high-risk stuff in the sense of being involved in domestic disputes or, you know, um, things that have involved, you know, like high-risk situations. Taught them the, um, the process procedures and some of the, the active listening techniques and they've become good negotiators. Now, with the armed hostage negotiations, it, it's that's you know, obviously quite dangerous and also can be quite emotional. Tell us uh, some stories about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I always find that, you know, dealing with uh, with kids in those situations being the hardest. And I do remember one where um, there was a, a situation out uh, at Minto in, in New South Wales where uh, a father... Um, or what happened was a, the AFP had a complaint from uh, uh, a woman that the former hus- husband, the father of the child, had taken the child hostage. The federal police went around and saw the, the kid on the driveway and uh, tried to grab him, but he was too quick and uh, ran back inside. The father confronted the police officers and then shut the door, then grabbed petrol and doused his whole house in petrol and uh, was demanding that the um, family co- family law agreements be changed and a whole bunch of other things. And dealing with that situation, you know that as time goes on, the, the actual situation gets worse because the 
the petrol evaporates and it becomes highly volatile. And you're sort of that pressure of having time um, around the negotiation is uh, is sort of really hard to work with because usually you can spend out send out the time you know you can use time as your friend basically um, but as working the other way you've got to uh, develop that rapport uh, understanding and be able to cut through and and uh, reduce the tension and get it to a situation where you talk in a uh, a normal problem solving voice and tone and and it takes time so you've got these two battles between using up time and then doing it fast so you reduce the the uh situation with the with the petrol i mean those cases we you know in this case we we managed to talk him out and um we you know unfortunately you know goes into custody because he committed an offense and but try and get him the best help we can and uh, and also you've got to deal with the the children or the victims of the situation and make sure they're looked after. And so the negotiations job goes a little bit longer than, you know, just the end of the situation. Um, although we try and get it into the right dispute resolution mechanism, whether that's the law or mental health or hospital or whatever. And But we'd be doing, you know, an average of two of these a week up to three a week, and sometimes we had three in the one night. So it's um, it really saps the uh, the resources you have, the highly trained resources, um, who do it part-time. They're not just not their full-time work. They, they get called off other work to come and, and link up to be, a, to be a negotiation team. And that also leads to the toll it must take on you guys. Like, as you said, you might get two a week, three a night. It, it must take a massive uh, toll to because these negotiations don't just go for half an hour, do they? They could go for hours. Yeah, they could go for hours and hours. And, uh, you know, many of my uh, team members, when I was in charge of the negotiators, you know, they, they didn't make it through. I mean, they had to retire, retired injured because they just – you know, couldn't deal with the situations that um, that came up in normal life. It would trigger something in their, their psyche and they would relive things, they'd have flashbacks, they would lock themselves in the house, they wouldn't leave for months. You know, these, these are very real problems. Like how do you train people to be, you know, so resilient and so expert in their field and expect them after... 10, 20 years to come out the other side. Um, and it takes four years to train a negotiator. Right. So it's not as if, I mean, that's an enormous amount of money. It's an enormous amount of um, money, you know, um, investment you're putting in people to respond to those events for New South Wales. And this training is all around Australia. And as been a lifeguard myself for so many years, and as I said, we touch on... Um, you know, covering the gap from time to time, with which is for listeners overseas or that don't know, um, it's a renowned area for suicide. And there's other situations we've had with people on the beach where, you know, they've got razors and trying to slice their wrists and, and things like that. So we're not trained in that, but is there one specific line you use to start off a negotiation or it all depends on what the situation you're in? I'm very reluctant to give that one line because everyone's is different. 
And I had a situation where I was training. I did a lot of training of negotiators and we spend about a day working on first words, basically opening statements. And this it was the first time I, I was actually in charge of the training and I gave the, the training and uh, we had a scenario the next day. And next day, every one of the people tried to be Steve York. And it just was clumsy and clunky and, and it just didn't work, you know. And so from then on, I, I say, here's the things we want to say. We want to introduce ourselves, where we fit in. In other words, you might say, I'm, I'm you know, lifeguard from Bondi, blah, blah, blah. And so the one thing you've got to say is I'm here to help. I'm not here to, to be here to grab you or anything like that. I'm just here to help. And that's with what you say, but also body language, your hand movements, standing distance, all those types of things have got to be consistent. And I think that's the most important thing. Whether you say Hoppo, no, I'd say that is, that's fine. Don't give your formal name. Although I said, you know, I'm Steve York, I'm a police officer. You know, so they understood where I fitted in to make it rational. You know, why would I be there? And I think being yourself is, is the key to it. You know, I remember training people not to use the word mate ever, you know, don't use mate because it's so emotive. But one of my negotiators, basically it was a very tense situation. It was on top of a building and a guy was going to jump and this guy who hopefully listens, Radar O'Reilly, went over and the first words he said is, is like, hi, oh, mate, I'm here to help. And he just used mate every second word basically. <laughs> and it clicked, it worked. That, that rapport came on very quickly. Who knows? I mean, staying away from mate, I think, is still a good a good idea, but if it's you, then you can probably carry it off. Now, you were uh, had landmark arrests, you know, from armed robbers and murders. And So tell us, there was a big siege uh, out at Liverpool. Tell us a bit about that one. Yeah, look, it's, it was one of those things that stick in your mind, and I've done... Um, there was a Netflix sort of series on negotiators and they picked that siege out of all the sieges they could have picked and sort of resulted in me giving and other people in the siege giving sort of a, a I suppose, a background on the situation, what you're thinking and so forth. And, yes, it was a situation where about 26 people were, were taken, not, not intently, about three people were taken hostage, but... There was another 26 people in the building that were were effectively taken hostage, and the hostage taker uh, said he had a had a uh, bomb. Um, he had passed police recordings for bomb making and blowing things up. Uh, he had a 22 rifle which he'd fired into the air and uh, started a negotiation where he wanted to find out from the the New South Wales. Child Protection Authority about why they took his son from him. Quickly, through our intelligence gathering, we found that his son was with uh, relatives of his in Queensland, and he had actually given up his son uh, to them to look after because he had a belief that he wasn't capable of looking after them. So, in fact, the demand he had was he wanted to know why. 
the department had taken his son, but the reality was that he knew that he'd given up his son. Um, so we had to negotiate that because he was threatening to blow up the building when he found out the answer, or if he didn't find out the answer by 12 o'clock, he was going to blow up the building. So it was a, it was a real catch-22 situation. So we had to negotiate. First of all, we had to negotiate to get 24 people out of the room, which was through the tactical team, like everyone taking off their shoes and and walking them through a back alley and, and down some stairs and to safety whilst the hostage taker and his wife were were in the main part of the building, part, main office part. So talking through that, I had to, I had to uh, talk through it to allow the time for the tactical police to, to do their operation. And they told me initially it should take about 30 to 40 minutes. Well, one hour and 40 minutes later, it was still going. I was still talking. But what I, what I did was, uh, which was, I don't know where the idea came from, but it was coming up to dinner time. So I, I had a Chinese uh, menu in the truck, in the negotiation truck. So I, um, I took him through the Chinese menu item by item just to fill in time and uh, asked whether, you know, he wanted that or, you know, how he wanted it, you know, he wanted chopsticks, all that sort of stuff. And we, we talked through the whole thing and it's, it's really, you know, look back on it and it's just bizarre really. But part of it was to give him um, power over the uh, – so like acknowledge his power over the hostages. So he's he's feeding them, but by by him feeding them, it's making them human, more and more human. So it's less likely that he would kill them. And there's a lot of psychology behind that. We had a psychiatrist working with us in this, and uh, you know it was a it was a very big deal. Uh, unfortunately, the end of that was that uh, I, I was changed over from the negotiation, negotiation and another two negotiators, sorry, another four negotiators came on, another two primary and secondary negotiators came on and we didn't see the end of it. He killed himself and killed his wife um, but luckily let the hostages go, which was, um, you know, it was... <clears throat> For us, it was very, very disappointing. It was a loss as far as we, we were concerned, but overall it was a, a success because we got the hostages out and, um, you know, we resolved the situation. And when you get a, a result like that, um, how does that affect you mentally yourself? Because as you said, it was a, you know, everyone probably would have thought outside of that, at least the hostages are alive, but, but how does that affect you guys? Enormously, really. Unfortunately, it's, it's cumulative. So you have a number of these and it, it just, you know, straw on the camel's back. Eventually it, it, you know, breaks it. And so there's a, you might have a, a run of, you know, good results and, you know, getting people back early and quickly. And, but you get a couple of these and it really takes away everything you've done in the past because according to the negotiators, these are losses. But I want to touch on one other uh, that I, I noticed that, and what happened with the Carilla cat burglar and how dangerous was this criminal? Yeah, well, this was a big thing in my life, but uh, the, the Carilla cat burglar, I wasn't, I wasn't on the investigation itself, but he was a career criminal. 
and a pedophile who would break, he was a cat burglar, so he'd go in at night knowing full well that people were home. And he would go and walk around and collect valuables. Um, he particularly liked going into children's rooms and touching them and then and then sort of running away. So he did about 77 cat burglaries in the Karela area, which is a, like a reasonably small suburb in the south of Sydney in the Shire. And if you think about, you know, one segment where, and there's a shopping centre up, the Karela Shopping Centre, where basically everyone that went and bought, the, bought bread and milk in the morning, they'd be victims of this cat burglar over a long period of time. And there was some very good work done by local police who eventually arrested him, running away from a, a burglary. And, uh, yeah, he was a particularly nasty piece of work. And did he... Um... He seemed to be able to cut deals with uh, to reduce his sentences. Yeah, look, he at some point he claimed that um, he was assaulted by police to get his fingerprints, and um, he alleged that I was part of that. I was never in the room with him while he was being while he was being interviewed or anything. I came in later when he kicked up a fuss with the with the local police and with uh, detectives, and uh, I helped put him back. It helped put him back in a seat to be further interviewed. He was just a very, very aggressive personality and he certainly didn't like the police. Anyway, sometime later he made a complaint against me and other police and he then, um, however, got involved in the in the uh, New South Wales Police Commission, uh, Royal Commission, and he made the same complaints to the Royal Commission, even though he'd been sentenced to... 20 years for his um, his crimes, he was able to cut a deal to give evidence and um, I had to go through the Royal Commission and uh, be subject to, you know, the full investigation and the cross-examination, public humiliation uh, through that process. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a terrible time for, for myself and other people. With the Royal Commission, was that was that? Would you say that's the toughest time in your life? Yeah, definitely. And did you think that that was it tough to you know you know you hear people saying they hit rock bottom? Would that potentially be rock bottom for you? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I, hope I hope there's nothing worse than that. No, it was just one of those things that I I had my uh, values and uh, belief and you know like. I remember mum saying to me when I was going down the Royal Commission, you know, like, you know, just answer the truth and, you know, the justice will look after everything, you know. And I I was subscribed to that view. But I had members of that organisation come to me and said to me that, you know, if you, if you change your story and say you weren't there, then we'll let you go on the police and you won't hear from us again. And uh, I spoke to my wife and said, look, here's the deal. And she goes, well, is that the truth? And I said, no. I said, I was there. I was there at the very end of it, but I was I was there. And she goes, that's our evidence. And I said, okay, you know, that's going to be tough. And she goes, yep. And so I went back into the commission and I just told the truth. And uh, 
you know, it wasn't very good for me. But looking back now, do you feel as though that was the it was the right thing to do? Oh, look from from the balcony, it was the right thing to do. I mean, I suffered for years about not only about psychological, but you know, just from earning a dollar. You know, like we had uh, some organisations came out and openly said we're not going to employ anyone from that had been mentioned in the Royal Commission. I mean, that, that was unheard of, you know. And basically, I mean, when you're when you're a career cop, you haven't planned for a plan for a plan B. Um, so it was meant that I had to pick myself up by the socks, and I started out consulting, and then I built a company, and then I sold it. And ended up, you know, doing a career in um, in risk management and teaching negotiation to corporates over the past twenty five years. And is it frustrating that stories get changed, people lie, and things like that? It must be. I mean, you hear it a lot in the in the police force, but you also hear it in other areas of the community as well. And it, it, geez, it must be frustrating. Well, it is frustrating, and it's one thing about you know that famous desiderata about you know understanding what you can't change, but dealing with it, and uh, you know everyone's got their own truth. I mean, I it really annoyed me hearing that statement, but it's true. Everyone does have their own version of events, and um, when I remember for the first five years, at least, I must have absolutely bored my friends or anyone that came across me telling my sad story. When they asked me, you know, what do you do? How do you do it? Why did you leave the negotiators? What I really should have said was, oh, you know, it's just one of those things that changed my mind. When I tried to tell the story, nobody's got a comprehension of the context in telling that story. And what did you do to get yourself out of that? You know, obviously you went through that rock bottom. What helped you get out of that and back to, as you said, starting other companies and, and, and moving into a different line of work? Professional help. You know, um, when I joined the police, you know, you you didn't take a day off work because the sergeant the, the next day would bash you around the head and say, you know, why are you bludging on your mates? And those were the words, you were bludging on your mates, right? So you turned up no matter what. If you turned up and need to go to the hospital, they may give you a lift there. That's the, That's the way it was. And so when you had these, you know, periods of feeling, you know, like things were getting over the top, you would revert back to, oh, no, I'm just going to work my way through it. And that meant you are going to work your way through it, not get professional help. But, you know, after some period of time, I went and got professional help and just took that stigma, which was mainly myself, but uh, that certainly helped. Well, that's good because a lot of people, uh, especially young ones coming through now, I notice, especially around the, the beaches and everything, and, and, and social media plays a big part. And Yeah, a lot of people are struggling out there with mental health for whatever reason. Well, I think everybody thinks everyone else is having such a wonderful life that they feel that they're, they're not living up to what they should be doing. They hide that and it just, you know, amplifies the problem. I mean, that's my opinion. I no research on it, but I know my daughter took herself off social media because she just couldn't understand everyone else was having such a fantastic time and she was struggling with some things. And I think that was the best thing she ever did. Luckily, she did it, not 
you know, wasn't enforced by anybody. It was good that she actually identified that and then did that. And I think uh, yeah, it's a good message for a lot of people out there that, yeah, that you know, people's lives aren't all as what it looks like and, and everyone goes through tough times no matter who you are, whether you're famous or, or just the ordinary person, you know, turn up to work every day. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, sometimes even myself, you know, falls for it thinking, you know, wealthy, famous people, you know, they've got it all. But, you know, it's, they have their own problems. It's all, it's all in proportion to what they do and what who they are. But um, they're all human. Also, there's a, a saying that words change people's lives. And is that something you believe in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I uh, coined the phrase and, and it comes from, you know, like no doubt the, you guys, lifeguards. I mean, I think you identified very, in, in the start of this podcast, it was, <clears throat> it's about you're the first responder because you're there. And, you know, some words that you say can have a dramatic effect on outcome, positive and negative. So you use the right words and you can alter behaviour. You can influence them by what you do and say to change behaviour to a better to a better course. And um, I think that we've all got to understand we're speaking with young people that, you know, you don't know how much they are influenced by you. And, of course, you're wearing a uniform and that uniform then applies to every person wearing the uniform right around Australia. And so they may have had a good interaction or a bad interaction, but there will be a past and it's, it's contextual to the situation they're in and the right words from you can actually move and influence the behaviour. Have you ever had a time where the, the words you used weren't right at that time and then you lost a bit of control of the situation? Well, you mentioned there's lots of those examples. <laughs> and very few people tell their mistakes, but, you know, I'm old enough to be able to do it. When I was doing that negotiation with the uh, at Liverpool, I got to speak to the hostages and uh, I remember vividly uh, speaking with this with this woman and, uh, and I'm saying, right, I've got... I've got uh, Troy to agree to let you go. And she says, let one of us go, not not me. And I said, well, you know, and we'd had a discussion with the psychiatrist and decided that this woman had was the one to go because um, she was very much a feisty, feisty woman and uh, was sort of changing the behaviour in, the, um, in the stronghold. So I said, I know it feels bad. And she said, how do you know? You've never been a hostage. And as soon as I I let the words go, I knew it was the wrong thing when I said, I know how it feels. You know, like it's it's impossible to know how it feels to someone who's been taken hostage, they put a gun to their face and they're going to blow their head. They know there's bombs in the place. How the hell would you know? And she picked it up straight away. She said, you've never been a hostage. And I had to say, well, I've been doing this work a long time. I know it must feel like, like you know, very being out of control, you know, all this sort of stuff. 
But she was right, and it was a very, like what I said was absolutely totally wrong. In fact, it was against all the training. I trained in those scenarios. The, the good thing was that it didn't have a negative effect on the outcome. In fact, she grabbed the other woman and kicked her out of the, the stronghold, and she stayed in. But um, we eventually got her out as well. But it's, you know, you say the wrong thing. But what I haven't had was something that I've said that was absolutely, you know, destructive or it cost someone their life or something like that. I find that people are very forgiving, even in high tense situations. So they give you a warning that you're saying the wrong thing. And so as a human, you can change your behaviour to match what they what they really want. Right. Also, you worked around with the Malats. Tell us a bit about the Malats. I just I just did very on the you know, on the periphery early in the piece. You know, the guys that ran that investigation were so committed. Yeah, look, it's it's a story for, for other people and, um, you know, it's it's just amazing that I think they're really finding there's a lot more people went missing uh, than has been, you know, has been dealt with under those people. But, uh, and, you know, other people were definitely involved. But, no, I'm not the person to speak to about that. But after looking back on, on your whole career, do, do you think the experiences has now shaped your life? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think everything you you grew up with shapes your life. But the stuff that I was doing in this high-risk area, you know, certainly shaped my outlook and, and how I approach life. And, uh, you know, if I can say that um, if you look back uh, on your career or on your life, you know, you will find points that did change it a bit. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like me with the Royal Commission. It's just like dealing with it, getting the strength to deal with it, getting the help to deal with it and put yourself back on track and take the experience and turn it into something, something positive you can do down the, down the street, whether that's, you know, talking to other people who go through the situation. And, you know, like even famous surgeons are going through their own Royal Commission and it will have an effect, you know, and I just hope it doesn't have a, an effect of that enormous talent withdrawing themselves from, from the community. Now, you, your wife's the current SES Commissioner and she also is a prosecutor now. Mate, geez, it must be a, – a, a, have you negotiated – you know, I know, but it's, I'm on to my third marriage, mate, so – the thing is, you might be able to give me some tips. Have you broken that, you know, be able to negotiate an argument with the missus? I, I'm still researching. <laughs> the, I'm still researching the issue. I can say that there's there's not many I can uh, there's not there's not many strokes on the uh, on the study door about the uh, arguments of one. Put it that way. <laughs> so at least that gives me a bit of. Uh, uh, I feel a bit better now, mate. After all your negotiating skills, it's uh, it's one area I think every every man struggles with. <laughs> yes, well, I'm not I'm not that good, mate. <laughs> and vice versa, yeah, by the way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you are described as the best mentor for junior police officers, so you know uh, at least uh, you're good there. I once was, yeah. I once was. I regarded myself as a 
is being able to take time with people and I enjoyed it. And I've taken that with the other places I've gone and enjoyed mentoring young people. And, and it is about time to listen and, you know, adding those few words that you, you get with experience. And, like, you know, it's like when you're my age, you know, I'm 65 this year, so it's my age is you've made a lot of mistakes and just make sure other people don't make the same ones. I mean that's the that's the beauty of being an elder in a in a community. Well, tell us a bit about what you're doing now. So I've just finished my corporate career. Um, as such, I've just left the Commonwealth Bank in charge of financial crime for the international, uh, the institutional business and markets. So that was the global part of the Commonwealth Bank, and I'm now doing um, consulting on. on doing some training for people, for organisations, and doing the odd consulting uh, job. At the moment, I'm doing an investigation into a $30 million fraud. And it's, you know, the, the problem with the, this fraud and with some other ones that are out there is that young, young heads, uh, you know, lending stuff to people who are basically criminals. And they thought that they are to do it the quick way. They thought to be able to do it the easy way. They left aside all the policy procedures and things you should do and just cut through to the deal. And now it's come back to haunt them. You know? Are you, are you amazed though, you know, when you started your career, you know, there wasn't internet, this social media wasn't around, um, online banking, it must be – I mean, I look at stuff that comes through now. I don't know what's real and what's not real. I'm the same. I mean, I'm getting SMSs, you know, from all sorts of things and I'm getting emails that are, look like proper emails but they're just spoofed emails. I've done a lot of work for charities where they've accidentally sent money to, uh, to the wrong account via an email that came in and said that, oh, I just want to change our bank accounts, you know. My thoughts are what I tell people, if you delete a real email, they'll ring you up and say, why haven't you done this? You know, so it's, it's, it's not catastrophic if you delete a real email, but acting on an email that looks like a real email can be catastrophic. So I say people, when in doubt, just delete just delete, and you'll get a phone call from someone saying, "Hey, listen, you you know you're three days late on that payment." Okay, right. So you, you then do the person to person, write down the details for the where the money's got to go or how you got to pay it, and deal with it. So when in doubt, delete. Yeah, that's that's good advice because um, I'm sure a lot of people just react to something like that quite quick and can get themselves in a lot of strife. Well, we've all been trained to deal with our bills appropriately, you know, and the crims are, are working off that. And so they'll use time like you've got, you know, if you don't do this in the next four hours, you're going to lose your licence or you're going to, you know, you're going to lose this or that or whatever. Um, and so they're reacting, they're, they're using those pressures and our background in being good people and dealing with our bills appropriately to get their to get the money into their bank accounts. 
Also, uh, mate, uh, coffee at Cronulla. That's a, I've got a little tip. I've got a tip, <laughs> man. I'm pretty sure you know where it came from, but uh, got tipped off. Uh, what, what about the the coffee at Cronulla? Oh, look, I'm, I'm always sucking into a certain <laughs> coffee shop down at Cronulla. I think it's AJS. I think that's the – or is it, um, you know – <laughs> is it Glenn's favourite coffee shop <laughs> that the whole of Cronulla has to go to? No, look, they do great Cronulla. They do great coffee, and it's at Cronulla, and it's it's uh, with good people, and um, it's fast becoming a bit of sort of a centre of community down there. And uh, people know when they need to talk to someone where to go, and and they'll find some old heads that they could uh, they could chat to. I'm pretty sure if uh, Goro's involved, there'd be plenty of banner going on at the at the time. <laughs> well, Steve, mate, it's, it's, congratulations on a on a great career, and, and you're still, you know, mentoring people, and, and it's uh, great to see. But at the end of the uh, interview, I do my uh, segment five fun facts, and now I'm going to throw five questions at you. You can answer however you like. What are the best and worst purchases you've ever made? Well, it's easy that one about. <laughs> was the best purchase I've ever made and it was the worst purchase <laughs> I ever made because, uh, uh, you know, a boat is a mistress and uh, you've got to keep keep spending on her. And uh, even though it was, you know, it's a great time and you're out in the water and it's another form of getting on the water. Being an old, you know, Cronulla boy, I, I grew up uh, surfing. I was a kneeboarder those days. Um you know, I just love being out the water. I've done nine Sydney to Hobarts and love sailing, but, you know, just being out to go out fishing and stuff with, with friends is, is terrific. Mate, cats or dogs and why? Dogs, 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 dogs. Look, <clears throat> I've had dogs all the time because I think they're definitely loyal. I mean, they're, they're just happy to see me when I get home and uh, they interact really well. In fact, the dog always likes sleeping under my desk while I do these things, and he's there right now, um, just making sure I don't go too far. But no, dogs for me. What are you most proud of? Uh, my time being a negotiator, yeah. Uh, it's the most intellectual, challenging time. It's where you felt like you were doing something for the community, uh, you're doing something for people. And, uh, you know, I did over 200 as a negotiator or as the commander of, a, of the negotiation team. And, you know, majority very successful and just those those ones that weren't. But uh, I've been able to put that in perspective. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Yeah, look, I've been following Charlie Tio's, well, it's, it's inquiry, you know, by the Healthcare Complaints Tribunal. I mean, and to me it's... You know, like there are, I can see that victims, uh, former patients on both sides, it's so emotive. And obviously the evidence will come out and, you know, they'll make their decision. But I just feel that people who operate right on that edge, they take a risk, they take a personal risk by, by doing those things. No one stops them on the way in. They vilify them on the way out. I just think we're pretty... We're pretty tough, you know. What song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Yeah, I don't particularly like this song, but I just love singing to it, which is Horses, Daryl Braithwaite, written by Ricky Lee Jones. 
you know, it was around when I was uh, when I was a kid, and I just feel that uh, somehow it takes me back. It's a good feel song. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you there. I sort of, uh, yeah, you sort of have to sing along when you hear it. It's yep. definitely, definitely uh, something I grew up with as well. Well, uh, Steve, mate, it's been great having you in the beach shack. And uh, you know what? I, I might even have to come over to the coffee shop and have a coffee with you guys soon. <laughs> what from the east? Hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'd be hard, mate. It'd be a, oh yeah, I'd be having a bad day to, to leave, yeah, to go past Anzac Parade. But I, I had a mate who was a godfather of my children, did not cross Anzac Parade for 30 years. <laughs> it's like a bubble. Once you get put in that bubble, you, you never leave. That's right. <laughs> right, mate, uh, I'll, I'll catch up with you soon. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, mate. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, we've got Chapo. It's the first time he's been in the shack, so welcome, Chapo. G'day, Bruce. Thank you very much for having me. Mate, uh, we've done plenty of rescues over the years. There's been some major ones. And, you know, what one stands out for you? I know you did the one at North Bondi there, Ben Buckler, so maybe tell us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I suppose it's, it's nice to be able to share a few stories about some of the rescues that you know, I've done with all the boys down the beach and with yourself, et cetera. And, um, you know, these, these, these days having such a huge platform to share it on, whether it be, I suppose, your podcast or through our television show Bondi Rescue basically showcases what we, what we do. And this rescue in particular was, um, you know, they're all crazy and they're all intense and they're all, um, you know, they 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 can be scary at times as well because you're you're dealing with life and death and um this one in particular as it as it panned out got called up to the boat shed at North Bondi there's a missing person in the water basically and um not knowing any more details than that even not even sure if there was somebody in the water I um I walked around and kind of was confronted with a group of people pretty adamant that um someone had been knocked off the kind of rock shelf into the the water behind Ben Buckler there, but I still wasn't a hundred percent convinced and basically ran into this lady who was Russian and she, she didn't have any English at all. So basically got there and was just, you know, assuming that there was somebody in trouble, whether they were alive or dead or, you know, just trying to gather if there was actually someone missing at this point. And I was speaking to this lady who was Russian and she, um, like I said, she couldn't speak any English, so it was kind of hard and there was a whole group of people with her trying to help her and you could see that there was something up because they were, they were just frantic and they, were, they looked really scared. And um, funnily enough, there was a Russian interpreter of all things out there as well, so I was getting this information saying, yeah, someone's been knocked into the water by a wave and it was actually this Russian lady's husband. They were a Russian couple and basically as I was asking her, had, you know, is there someone missing? Can you show me where 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 this happened? Where where did he go into the water? I just will never forget, I just saw his body just wash up in front of me on the rock at Flat Rock. Just there it was, you know, he was just 
yeah, so I was speaking to his wife and her husband just washed up on the rocks in front of me and kind of happened really quickly. It kind of wave washed him up. And what was that feeling like? Oh, I was I was just in shock, really. I was just like, oh, my God, not only, okay, there's someone missing, here he is, right in front of my eyes, basically. And I just kind of went for went to grab the body, but in that time, and it was brief, it was quite brief in such that I was even second-guessing myself that it actually even happened. So Wave washes him up, Wave washes him back into the water, and so... There was a few guys who were scrambling around the rocks and at, at this point was back in the water. He was the, the guy was back in the water and he'd been missing for maybe 20 minutes. So it wasn't wasn't looking good at this stage. And I'd seen the body, so I was like, holy, holy crap, you know, like this is, you know, he was he was dead basically. And I had the boys on the jet ski and I had the helicopters out there. And so I'm getting this information and I'm kind of second guessing myself did this actually happen did I see a body and I was actually asked a swimmer in the water were you up on the rocks that's kind of how unsure I was sure but not sure it was weird and um so I've just said the boys I've seen the body it's right here um so I've left you know his poor wife with in the hands of these onlookers who are doing a great job in looking after this this woman who just lost her husband and so I was kind of working with Beardy and Jake at this time and the helicopter. So we, you know, the body's within, you know, this 10-metre area close to the rocks. So we really honed our search in because up until then we didn't know, firstly, if there was someone missing or, you know, he got washed off right around the corner. So he'd kind of come right around to Flat Rock, which was like crazy in itself. So, you know, here we are like, right looking for this body we knew where it was but we still couldn't see it so you know me jake and beardy have just kind of really honed our search in and um yeah we're dealing with what seems to be a deceased person at this stage and then what happened from there did you um get them you know you you found the body yeah look you know that that was our number one priority then is just to make sure that we get the body and you know the next thing from there was who knows what was going to happen from there so we um yeah so I jumped on the ski me Beardy and um Jake were right up against the rocks and you know the crazy thing about our program and what it showcases it it doesn't hide behind situations like this which I think is great it can be hard at the time dealing with you know cameras and life and death situation this being top of the top top category really and um but what it does kind of showcase what we actually do in 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 real life and and that's kind of the combination of doing these rescues and um you know having you know a a kind of television series behind you is is pretty unique obviously but um yeah it it's 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 a um kind of lost track here a little bit but it's it's just a, that combination how do you think that um makes makes the like yourself feel and deal with it after the fact as well after you've seen a, a body like that yeah like i said you know that it it, it kind of it, it makes it easier in some in some respects because it shows that what we're doing is you know it's 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 um it's a great thing that we do down there and, and 
you know, we go through the motions and these rescues, like, you know, this one, as it ended up, we, um, we located, I forget what his name was, but you know, I should know. Um, we found the body and basically dove down, grabbed it, grabbed him and put him on the sled. And, and in these kind of situations, you're up really close and personal to deceased people, which is not easy for anyone. And we just use our training to, to, to get through that. So you basically grab the body and you, um, lay on it, take it to the nearest point, which was the boat ramp where the ambulance officers were waiting and we handed him over there. But, um, so that was just tying up the end of the rescue and to go back to what I was saying about having a television show and what it showcases the jobs that we do. And this one in particular is, um, yeah, look at it, it, to be back to your question, it does, it doesn't make it any harder. It, it, it makes you proud of what you do more than anything, I think, because some of these just rescues just come and go. You don't hear, hear anything more from it, but now it's kind of, it's out there and people watch it and people admire what you do and people can criticize what you do as well, but it's all there for people to, to see and it doesn't sugarcoat it at all, I suppose. Yeah. And then back to the uh, rescue. So you've then got them up on the rock when you found the body and then started CPR. Look, you know, we have the ambulance officers come, come in, um, on the top of us. So because it had been a while, the ambulance officers were actually there. So it's almost like we did the nitty gritty of body recovery, body retrieval. And, you know, we took the body up to the ambulances and with the ambulance officers, we, I think it was Beatty, Beatty jumped on the chest and started CPR, but it, it didn't take long to realize that there wasn't a lot of hope, I suppose. And um, so, yeah, you know, we, we went into CPR and, that lasted as long as it did. And yeah, so that was, you know, memorable and, you know, the footage around it keeps it alive in some weird way. And, you know, there was footage from iPhones and all the technology these days of him actually being hit by the wave. It was about six to eight foot around the corner and it's pretty graphic. You just see these two people hit by a wave, but we didn't know what had happened. And this all came out after people on the cliffs had taken footage of it or were filming them at the time. So from there to when we picked it up was all documented. So, you know, that's rare in itself. And to be involved in rescues like, like this on a kind of regular basis is, um, or I shouldn't say on a regular basis, it, it happens. It's not regular, but, um, you know, there's a few on television and through our program that we do that have been captured that are real life and death and this one didn't turn out well but there have been one or two others that we have um got back to life so um and they're even more amazing i suppose yeah well yeah they are amazing the job everyone does is is, is pretty good so but chapo thanks for uh stopping into the beach shack mate telling the story uh we'll have to catch up soon perfect thanks mate Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Matthew and he's all the way from New Mexico in the United States. His question is, what are some of your favourite movies or TV shows and what future films are you looking forward to? Well, I'm going to go way back for the uh, the movies. I enjoyed uh, the Star Wars series back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, 
that was something I grew up with. TV shows, I would say uh, Baywatch was probably one of my favourite and I still think to this day it's the highest rating TV show ever. So they're my favourites. Now, films uh, that I'm looking forward to, look, I've watched a few here and there recently but uh, haven't got any on the radar at the moment as to uh, of films that I would like to see. Uh, hopefully uh, some good action-packed ones come back because I don't mind the uh, the war movies. I thought uh, they're quite good over all the years. I've been watching those. But uh, thanks, Matthew, for your question, and we will uh, catch you all again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.